following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It Podcast with Brittany Page and Jesse Dallimore. Welcome to the show, everybody, and thank you for joining us one and all for this 801st episode of I Doubt It Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Dollimore, joined today by the lovely, talented, scholarly, and illustrious Brittany Page, but also in studio. Very special guest, as you well know from the title of this episode, there's no hiding it from you, sleuths. Spoiler alert. Aaron Rabinowitz from the Embrace the Void podcast, as well as... Philosophers in Space, the hardest working man in showbiz. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to be here with my two favorite ex-fascists. <laughs> wow. Already starting with the Well, attacks. also very presumptuous here that we we're ex. Okay. I mean, you seem to be more ex. You're hiding your power levels better than you used Fascism to. Fascism is really a spectrum these days. True. Mm. It's true. <laughs> Merely that being white, you're clearly already on the spectrum somewhere. That's so. right. Yeah. So... Many of you, actually no one is probably asking themselves, how do they know Aaron? Yeah, yeah. Um, But let me answer the question that none of you are asking. A few weeks ago, we had a weekend where we spent um, a weekend in Lake Anna, Virginia at some lake house. Mm -hmm. And Aaron happened to be uh, also invited to this weekend. And we, I think we headed off. Uh Yeah, I would say shout out to the mutual of ours who thought that we would get along Swimmingly, that was 100% the case. Who, and, who is that? Uh, um, Marcus. Uh, Hello, Marcus. Marcus. <laughs> How dare you, sir? I was very... Con- you You are a great actor, Am sir. I? Yes, Thank because you. I was very confused. The look on your face, everything. I think, Aaron, you were also confused. You didn't know there was going to be a drop that followed? I I was I was not aware the special effect was coming, and I was, <laughs> I was very happy with that. It worked out. Well, see, at least you're giving the respect to the soundboard. You're calling it special effects. <laughs> yeah, you're throwing in some George Romero there. over here. Yeah, yeah. So, so Marcus, listener of the show, long-time early adopter of this stupid program, uh, invited us, also invited Aaron, we we spent many nights talking about kind of a mutual interest, something we talk about on the show a lot, which is luck. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly that people always ask, like, how is it that you started a podcast at your kitchen table just being a couple of dum-dums and people now listen to it? And how did you find success on YouTube? And the answer invariably that we give, the audience knows well, that it's it, very, very lucky. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be kind of a pet interest of yours as well. Yes, that was one of the things that Marcus thought that we would have shared interest on. The other one being, um, and I do think we should share a little bit of our meet cute, uh, which was that Marcus Hello, really wanted Marcus. to put me in the same room with Brittany in particular because, you know, if you look at like all of the my interests, you know, conspiracism, all these sorts of things, at the like dead center of the all of it is just Brittany's experience. And so... It's just a picture yeah, of wh- me. Yeah. Let's, l- why are we dancing around it? Yeah. You mean her being raised by her being raised fucking by, Nazis. By Nazis, right. Like, or as we euphemistically say on the show, hashtag raised by wolves. Yeah. Right. I am, I've had a long time obsession with cults, conspiracy theories, 
white Christian nationalism, you know, all these sorts, and also like the luck problems of people who are unfortunate enough to be born into and, and raised in a situation like that. Um, and we had a particularly, I think, funny moment where it became clear that it was both. So like, you know, I got there and he dropped this bomb on me. I had no idea this was coming. <laughs> Unlike y'all who apparently had some warning on this. He's like, hey, by the way, she's an ex-Nazi. Um, <laughs> Not the next Nazi. Right. Ex-Nazi. Ex, ex, maybe also the next, as you pointed out, could revert at any time. Excuse right? me, he was speaking for himself, not me. Right. Yes. And so... I, of course, have just gotten to this lake house. I don't know y'all. I, I don't know if it's okay for me to immediately launch into the 500 questions that I have about what it was like to have that experience. But once I figured out that it was okay, mm-hmm. then we started having some really great conversations, probably my favorite of which was the one where you showed me your chi- your, your scary your scare normies photo, right? Yes. Everyone has a like a scare normies photo. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to describe your particular scare normies photo? Yeah, I like how you're phrasing it as scare normies. I also phrase it as like explaining that um, I was raised not just with like a racist Uncle Gary. It's a little bit more than that. Like Uncle um, Gary. But yeah, it's a picture of me and my baby sister. I'm holding her in my lap. She's wearing jellies. We're very young. I'm probably like seven and she's like a baby. And we are in front of a swastika flag which is in our garage and my sister is holding a stuffed lamb chop and Aaron is the first person the only person that I have showed this photo to who said to me you were allowed to have lamb chop you were allowed to watch lamb chop (laughs) and I said no no you're the first person to note because my parents told us that Lamb chop was a Jew. That was the phrase. Lamb chop was a Jew. You sure. know, the little lamb, the, yeah. the little sweet hand puppet. Right. Commie Jew. <laughs> and you are the only person to highlight that. Well, so. you know, it's Jew recognizes Jew. That's right. We, That's what it is, right? Well, you, you were taught to learn the, the facial recognition of the Jew, even in the lamb form. <laughs> yes, indeed. Right. Yeah. And Rabinowitz, I don't know if the audience knows... Yeah, Aaron, not, not Aaron a David Rabinowitz. You don't even have to put the echoes around it. They're, they're like implied <laughs> just by the name. Uh, yeah, no, it was a thing where I assume for normal people seeing two cute, blonde, young girls in front of a Nazi swastika flag is upsetting. Yeah. For me, it's like Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> and so like I was more curious about this little bit of detail about how like, because, you know, it's always interesting to me which parts of the evil popular culture that is killing these people, they allow their young people to still have access to while yeah. trying to indoctrinate them. Absolutely. You know, what? what is interesting about when that photo gets shown mm-hmm. and the reason that we are fond of saying, like I've said for years, Britney's parents, they were racist. Not like run-of-the-mill white people racism. We're talking about like Nazi shit, like pictures of Adolf Hitler in the house. And what's weird is when people see that photo... It's, it is, it washes over them it, just witnessing the transformation of them understanding, oh, you mean your parents didn't just occasionally like they were vile and they used the mm-hmm. N word. Mm-hmm. We're talking about something completely separate. Right. Well, and it didn't, there was no wash over you. It, if anything, it was a wash of curiosity, not like, ah. yeah. No, you said you were. You know, hanging around the Aryan Nation, I calibrated my expectations appropriately. Yeah, actually, <laughs> I know what uh, Aryan Nation pictures. Look I like. have audio from from the moment you learned about it. Oh yeah, she's not a Christian. <laughs> All right, uh, so we're going to continue with the special effects. Show. So, so why don't let, let's start here, and why don't you tell us 
First of all, what do you do? We know you're a podcaster, but uh, yeah. what are you doing right now? We, you know, you're a philosopher. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I've had a fairly unconventional career path, let's say. I <laughs> I got to undergrad planning to do theater. I was not, I'm not a very good actor, and it became very clear that like I didn't really want to do lighting or the other kinds of things that I do. I have done for money at various points when I needed to over the course of my life, but like I didn't want it to be a career. And at the same time, when I got to undergrad, I found out that like philosophy is something that living people still do and not something that just people did thousands of years ago. And I got really into ethics in particular. I really enjoyed sort of the, the complexities of ethical thought experiments and how it was this kind of unsolvable puzzle that you're always wrestling with every day of your lives. Um, and I got sort of obsessed with that. And then like, because I had come late to it, I didn't get into any grad programs, so I took a year off. I worked on the Obama campaign in Virginia in 2000, uh, in the first Obama campaign, turning Virginia blue. Mm-hmm. Um, we were in Richmond. Getting good up, job, by the, the way. Vote. We, did, we did a pretty good job on that yeah. one. I was really rather It pleased. held for quite a while. Yeah, it did pretty, pretty good for a second there. I'm pretty, and I think we're going to swing back in that direction. I think Virginia will stay trending in that direction. And then I was uh, out in Colorado getting my master's degree. I got into a terminal master's program out there. I was, again, studying ethics and meta-ethics, and I got really particularly obsessed with these problems of moral luck, which are these situations that we all know of, at least some, and I think there's a lot more out there where people are treated as being morally responsible for something that's beyond their control, and we consider that kind of unjust um, but we allow it to happen in a bunch of different situations. So I got obsessed with that. I didn't really have a solution to the problem. I just was stuck on it for 10 years at least and was like teaching. I was teaching about it in classes. My students were loving it. They thought it was a really interesting problem. I would get emails from like students 10 years later that were like, I'm still obsessed with the problem of luck. Um, and eventually I was really enjoying teaching at Rutgers, but they wanted me to get a PhD because I only had the master's and I wanted to do more education stuff. So I went into a PhD in education there with an interest in like moral education and these luck stuff in particular. And I've basically started trying to develop kind of a a pedagogy, a, a broad theory of how to talk about luck and free will and moral responsibility in a wide range of, you know, educational settings in a way that I think is more both philosophically accurate, but also ethically better for people that it reduces desires for punitive justice, increases, um, you know, compassion, humility. We can get into all the details of those kind of arguments, but basically what I'm obsessed with now is doing public education that helps people also get luck pilled into thinking about this stuff all the time. Luck pilled. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully, you know, change enough people's minds that we restructure our society appropriately. Well, let's see how you do with luck pilling the audience, because in our experience, it is often quite difficult for people to accept that even a substantial portion of their life experiences, what has brought them to where they are in their life is attributed to luck. Mm -hmm. We get feedback from listeners when we talk about how lucky we are to be where we are. And they always emphasize, well, hard work certainly played a role in that. That's important to highlight. And Jesse often agrees with that. I certainly agree with that as well. Well, but it's, it's not an outside for me. I think that I've, loosely landed on like the division of labor between luck and hard work is like 85% luck, 15% work 
we know you disagree. That you makes think Aaron 100% gag. Lie. He's yeah, like he's actually walking right out now. of the room right now in disgust. <laughs> you are so. I, th- I think there are like different categories of people on this. I think there are very few people who think that it's zero percent luck. They're, you are one of them, though. Yeah, right. I'm full anti luck, <laughs> radical libertarian, free will all the way. No, you know, I think. I've tried to think of who could even be a person who thinks that it's all not luck. Mm-hmm. And it would have to be like someone really deep into like the wish or the secret or like some mm. of the like law of attraction stuff. Maybe I got two words for you. Donald yeah. fucking Trump. Well, that's three words. Uh, that type. Yeah. Even those folks though, I think they have to accept that there's some amount of it. They just think it doesn't reach very far. Whereas mm. most people I think these days accept that it is, you know, at least, 30 to 50 percent and then like if you're farther left politically you probably tend to think it's closer to 80 85 percent and then if you're me you think it's 100 percent and the goal is to get everyone to get slowly along that track to get there and different people will get different lengths i think in their lifetimes but i think i think the right thing is to recognize that even hard work is luck all the way down and there are there are good reasons. There are lots of good reasons why people would be concerned about this view that I want to talk about. I don't want to like dismiss your audience as not, you know, as being foolish for thinking that there's anything to be worried about here. There's actually a lot if you don't talk about this stuff, I think, properly, you can put people into pretty dark hopelessness, nihilistic, fatalistic kinds of places. Um, and I think when they tell you, oh, you do really hard work, you should, you know, it's not all luck. I don't think they are thinking about it in a deep philosophical way. They're just trying to, you know, positively reinforce you for doing something that they think is valuable because it is valuable and it's good to positively reinforce people. And I just think we have to like, just tweak our language for how we positively reinforce people and say, you know, your show is great. It helps a lot of people. You're very lucky that you get to do that and that that it worked out and that you were successful in getting enough people to listen that you can have that impact. Yeah. Like, that's all great and luck and keep doing it. Yeah, I mean, we we don't disagree there. I think for 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 the way we talk about it, the, the hard work component when people talk about it, I say, yeah, that's true. If we hadn't worked hard, um, all the luck in the world is not going to fucking matter because mm-hmm, you, you mm-hmm. piss away an opportunity. Right. You have to seize seize the moment when it happens. But without that luck, all the hard fucking work in the world does not matter. Mm-hmm. because you didn't get lucky. Well, let's drill down on, because you said that hard work is luck all the way down. Can mm-hmm. you give examples of that to illustrate that point for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and like, I don't but know. Even denigrate us in our experience using your, your little analogy here. <laughs> well, and it's also a question of like, what do we want to do first? Do we want to do examples or do we want to do like definitions? Because we want to define, there's a bunch of like important terms here that. You're right. Let's define the construct, Aaron. Tell us what hard work is. Well, I'm not is. even sure that's the right answer. I actually think that it is more valuable for a lot of non-philosophy folks be- to just start with examples because it helps. Yeah. ground the conversation. Well, that's what I asked you for first. Why are I, you throwing out definitions? I was just pointing, because because look, some amount of philosophers are going to listen to this and be like, why aren't you defining your terms yet? People complain about people not defining no their terms No fucking philosophers are listening to this I, fucking I, show, there brother. Were, this this one episode, at least, you'll probably get a few... No, okay. Um, so, so take the hard work. What do we mean by hard work? We mean the ability to persevere, maybe. There's been a, a bunch of different... Grit. Yeah, grit is the worst version of this. Right? Resilience. Right, well, resilience. It, I think for me, it is uh, continuing even through bad uh, occurrences. Like when things are tough, they're not looking good. We stuck to this and 
again, the luck kicked in. Here's something funny about Aaron, and I wish that we were recording visually because is it you his can, face? Yes, you can see. <laughs> and it, maybe this is maybe this is just the therapist in me. But when Jesse says something, you can. It's like a rat has walked into a trap, and Aaron is just thrilled to be no, able to dispose you make of this it sound rat. So in the trap. evil and Jewy. Well, the, I, wow. <laughs> okay, let's not bring everything so back to that. About it, <laughs> it's just rats are on the brain because we're in. I get I get excited because I like when people are following the trail. It, to me, it's not a maze or a trap. I mean, it is a maze, but it's not a trap maze. It's like we're all in the maze together, kind yeah. of, and it's fun when to watch other people walk through it. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So you were saying no. So that's how I would define. We're, I mean, we're defining hard work. Right. Right. So yeah, in the literature, right. The one of the original versions of this is grit, which. I would argue in the literature deliberately leans into being a kind of conservative version of this where we wanted to say, you know, here's something that you can talk about to motivate young people, have them, you know, you got to have more grit, more gumption, more stick to or something like that. And then there's like a more progressive version of that perseverance where it's like, do you, do you stick with it when things are hard? It's steadfastness. Right. And, yeah. and I think first of all, we want to note there's a bad version of this, right? This is like virtue where there's a vicious version of obsessively sticking to something when you should bail on it, sure. right? There are projects where they're not working and you should bail on them. So it's like, a, it's a it's a balancing kind this of thing. This is also right? like tangentially related to like fucking hustle culture, which yep. makes me want to just, bleh, yeah, just right. gross. Right, and it, it actually, not even tangentially, I think it's directly related to hustle culture is a version of like meritocratic thinking. Mm-hmm. It's this all yeah. whole idea of like, if, if you just work hard enough, you will succeed. Yeah, like Elon right. Musk is where he is because he works so hard. Right. So by, if you just d- reverse that, if you work almost as hard, you'll find equally wild success, maybe not quite the hard, so it, but it, it doesn't map on. Right. People work their whole lives, they work themselves to death, literally. Right. And Most they don't people. achieve, yeah, and they don't achieve even, you know, a stable financial situation in their lives. Mm-hmm. And so the argument that I would then make is even the ability to persevere is a matter of luck in the sense that, you know, there are so many things about you that could be different that would make it so that you couldn't persevere. The the obvious example is if you had a persistent chronic illness that had fatigue as part of one of its main symptoms. I I don't disagree. Right. And so what I think is you don't disagree when when it's pointed out, but when it's not pointed out intuitively, you're thinking of hard work is somehow different from those features of you that give you the ability to work hard. Well, then then we get go down the fucking rabbit hole of the connected element to this, which is free will. Right, exactly. Because you're Let's now... Let's head to the middle of the maze. You're now taking away from me any choices that I that I did make. You took it you're away, You're saying, Aaron. oh, you're just lucky that you're able to, to persevere, which is true. Mm-hmm. But I also made the choice. I could have made the choice that, nah... I'm not into this. I don't want to do this anymore. And then none of the lucky success that we have been able to realize mm-hmm. would have been realized. Yeah. So this is where I think it's good to sort of disambiguate the like different accounts of free will and luck, right? So you got into a language of could have done otherwise there, which is one way to talk about these issues. It's called counterfactual thinking, right? Imagining a scenario. This fucking guy. Imagining a scenario where something could have been different is an important part of how we think about the world, right? You're walking along, you know, a car drives by and almost hits you but doesn't. You immediately think of yourself as very lucky because you were so close to that almost getting hit situation. 
that kind of thinking can be valuable as a way to make, make people aware of things like luck. I don't think it actually grounds what we mean when we say that someone is lucky. So what we, what I think we really mean is, and it's not also um, just chance, because I think we think that people can be lucky in ways that aren't like unpredictable and random. You know, like you can have privilege, which is a stable, you know, predictable kind of luck sure. that will influence yeah. outcomes in reliable ways, right? So what is what is luck then? I think is something that's beyond your control in the in a certain kind of way. Yeah, but you're now you're mm-hmm. you're some you're wriggling away from the the discussion and the point about making choices. Well, so what I want to get to is... So, I wanna, so I, if I don't have free will, which you do not believe in... Yeah, so, so the headline is you don't have choices in the way that your egoic mind wants to in order to take credit for them. That's going to be true. I was just going to get us to explaining what we mean by someone making a choice. Mm. Because I think the concept of choice is actually more confused than people think it is. You think it's clear. So when you say you make a choice, I think you believe on some level that there's like a little you, this is like called the homunculus view, but like there's a person inside of your head who's like making a final decision, right? Maybe there's forces pushing on them, like being hungry or angry, but there's a control module in the middle of you that makes a final decision. And that's the thing we're going to hold morally responsible. Is that what you're thinking of when you think of, choices no what do you think of when you think of a choice are you just you just literally i don't mean... exist in a men in black world where there's a little alien <laughs> so, pulling so you, levers so just, and shit so do you just mean i could have ate an apple instead of an orange and i just picked the apple well i mean i mean that's pretty flippant but but <laughs> yes but yes there i mean there there were many crossroads right that, that we encountered that could have led us to stop doing what we're doing deciding to stop Right, deciding we'd had a good run, a good go, and we're no longer going to pursue this anymore. Mm-hmm. And we we decided, right. made a choice, right, using what I believe to be free will, mm-hmm. to continue. Right, but and what- absolutely, we could have come logically to the conclusion that nah, I'm going to go fucking work at you know mcdonald's or whatever do something else i think Mm -hmm. i think the free will discussion can be a little heady especially for people that aren't into philosophy and don't really care about it right so (laughs) could could you kind of i don't know just give a brief explainer on what the debate over free will is and like what the positions are yeah and i want to do it without getting into any conversations about the nature of the universe physics quantum blah 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 Right. What really? Come on, Deepak Chopra. No, like all the all that we mean really, and this gets borne out in the psychology literature too. What we mean when we talk about free will is moral responsibility. We mean is did this person act in such a way where they had again the kind of control that we consider the right kind of control to hold somebody morally responsible? So let's just use concrete examples. Right. Uh, you have the classic example of the person who develops a brain tumor and starts having like pedophiliac urges. Basically, there have right. been documented cases, documented of this. cases, of yeah. this. and you get the tumor removed and the urges go away, right? I don't think that. So, I, I think most people would say that that person, whether or not we're going to end up punishing them legally, is a separate question. But we would say that the tumor absolves them of moral responsibility. There, we would say they didn't have control over the having of those over the urges. urges. Right, so there's a separate question of whether they had control of acting on Right, but when you then download reams of child pornography... Right. ...a decision has been made. Right, and so then the question becomes, what do you think is driving that decision if not the urges caused by the tumor? Because the tumor is not something that's in their control and it comes back to control. 
Well, but yeah, but, but then again, now we're on a spectrum. I'm just, of, I'm following, I'm following know, the argument because we were gonna, trying to explain free will like, to the urges. audience. Okay, right. right. I, well, now we're again. I don't want to get down the rabbit well, hole. Well, that's what right. you're not. I'm just, he's trying to explain free will to the audience, so. Well, no, it's okay. The basic, I mean, the basic problem of free will is, is there a thing that we believe can be held morally responsible in a person? And people like me think if you really do take an account of all the kinds of luck that exist in the world, there is no such thing. And we should jettison the idea of moral responsibility, the idea of just desserts. We should reorient our society. Now, I want to put a pin in the fact that like, I don't think we take we jettison moral judgment in the sense of like it's still wrong for you to murder someone, but if you do and if you do successfully murder someone is a matter of luck, and we have to think differently about how we're going to treat you because of that. Think of like a child, you know, soldier for example. No one questions that like a child soldier doesn't have the same kind of responsibility, and they, what basically happens is we all accept that there are certain things that ameliorate responsibility. And everybody has an inconsistent set of lines that they think they pretend are consistent. And what I'm saying is the only consistent position is to just acknowledge that everyone is in the, is not culpable in the kind of way that we have in mind here. And so, so those yeah. lines that people have are obviously based on their own personal life experiences. I'm assuming like does political affiliation predict where people fall on mm-hmm. that spectrum. Yes. This is a really interesting question that I've been reading a, a bunch of stuff on recently and I should say the research is complicated by some of the um, instruments that are used to measure things like belief and free will having problems in them that have to do with like psychologists not necessarily doing enough conceptual work before asking certain kinds of questions. So for example- Great, so this is an attack on no, psychology, psychology is now. what's happening yeah, now? No, I'm, okay. attacking, I'm attacking you oh, personally Great. right now. Yeah. Um, no, so, so just give That's a very, how we started, so it makes sense well, it's continuing. I can give a very straightforward example. So one, one tool that's used frequently has a section that's about testing belief and free will, but several of the questions are like, do you think that criminals should be held morally responsible for their actions? Mm-hmm. Because that correlates- because again, like I said, free will is just moral responsibility by, by another name. Mm-hmm. But if you're then using that instrument to assess, for example, does this person's belief in free will correlate with punitive desires to punish, then you've just begged the question by asking them, do you think that people deserve to be punished twice, basically? Right. right? So you get a problem there that like later research has tried to assess and it's being worked out. And here's what I'll say. The evidence mostly suggests there are correlations between things like political uh, views, the most common one being essentially you see stronger belief in free will amongst conservative individuals. Um, and the, the current reasoning suggests the causal explanation is those individuals have a stronger desire to punish. So they feel they see someone who does something wrong and they feel a strong need to see that person punished. And then they explain that it's justified in punishing because that person has free will. They follow up with an ad hoc free will argument after the fact, basically. Well, it seems like this would also be connected to like high religiosity because people believe that God gave them free will. And, and disgust as well. Mm-hmm. So those ones are a little more complicated. The, the data is still a little sort of undecided. So in, insofar as conservatism correlates with religiosity, especially in America, there's a connection for mm-hmm. sure. Um, more broadly speaking, I think I think they have found sm- smaller than they would expect correlations between free will and religiosity. 
given intuitively what you would expect. It's not a non one, but it's not as strong as you'd think. Okay. Um, and then there are like various other sorts of things that they've correlated. And then the other important thing about this research, which gets back to the, like concerns that your listeners might have about what happens if everyone adopts my absurd viewpoint would be <laughs> what are the effects of like motivation in general and moral motivation in particular. So early studies found, for example, that if you decrease belief in free will, you make someone more likely to cheat or steal. And so you worry about more antisocial behaviors amongst people who have reduced belief in free will. Now, again, those studies, I think, were using bad instruments. And recent studies have, fa- have not replicated those results as far as I've seen. So I would actually say we don't know all of what the implications would be, but there's just as much decent evidence showing pro-social benefits as antisocial benefits. Mm. And the kind of pedagogical work that I want to do is specifically scaffolding thinking about these issues in a way where you don't slide into the the fatalism or the nihilism and you just get the compassion and the humility and the desire to help others more because they need it and they're just unlucky. So basically, if I'm going to summarize everything you just said, (laughs) Jesse on this free will spectrum, like where he would land, he's basically like a white Christian nationalist is basically he like like, share the free will perspective of the... Well, I think this this is where I can engender some compassion for you. I'd say... Oh, I love that. He, like you, is a recovering white Christian nationalist, right? Uh He was indoctrinated. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, and they actually there is... Again, the hard work thing ties in with the religiosity, the bootstrapping, conservatism stuff. You do see... Even people who I've talked to who've gotten out of that stuff still believe a lot of like merit like soft meritocracy right the like yeah you know y- yes some people get unlucky if they don't even if they work hard but the people who work hard are the ones who succeed and benefit and stuff like that when like hard work is increasing the odds that you're going to get lucky type thing right mm-hmm. right exactly and that is not necessarily i'm not gonna say all the way bad what i want you to say to people is you know Tell us what to say. As long as you want us to say it. (laughs) Well, look, you know, you're here. You brought me here. I I assume to hear my ridiculous views. So here they are. (laughs) What what I think you should say is hard work in the sense of perseverance. It plays an important role. And that is also a part of luck. So don't, you know, so feel lucky if you are able to work hard and persevere. So do you think it's a bad thing that I put uh, a 15% marker on it? Like I'm, I'm, I'm quantifying it. Well, so yeah, if you're quantifying like a hundred percent luck versus not luck, then putting anything in the not luck category, I think, is a mistake. If you're quantifying it in terms of what amount of perseverance versus random chance events, you know, if you mean if if by luck you mean the traditional, well, so not the traditional, but one traditional account, which is the like external, you know, meteor hits the planet kinds of pro- things, then it's not as much of a problem. Then then it's more okay to say you know, perseverance plays X percent role in better outcomes. So, so do this for me then, uh-huh. Aaron, uh-huh. brother, friend, pal, comrade. Yes. No, we're not there yet. <laughs> um, so convince me mm-hmm. that out, whatever level of success that we have attained, convince me. Change his mind. That it's, yeah, well, I'm fucking Steven Crowder <laughs> over here. Um, convince me that there is no 15% hard work or perseverance or whatever. Convince me that it is 100% luck. Well, so again, what I want to say is working hard is part of the success. Your ability to work hard is luck, right? So that 15% hard work is part of the larger 100% yeah, but then, category but then of I will, I'm immediately going to go back to, but I chose 
right. who wasn't lucky that I chose so, so let's play, to let's, do the hard work. Let, let's play a game, right? Uh-oh. Is it Saw? <laughs> this is absolutely Saw. <laughs> right. No, you know, philosophers, we love to do games. Um, pick one of the, one particular choice that, you know, like a concrete event where you could have given up and you didn't. What was it? Like, you know, was there like one day where you were really like, fuck it? No, no. I mean, I, you know, getting a little personal in the relationship thing, it would be different fights that Brittany and I have had. Like, this is when we were very, very poor, counting change for gas money, mm-hmm. that kind of like dire straits financially. Yeah, perfect. So what in that situation motivated you to stick with this instead of get a nine to five job? Um, Knowing the, well, the the glimmer, the shimmer in the distance of this, I f- just feel like this thing's getting ready to turn around. Okay. You think that's accurate, Brittany? Well, I mean, I'm going to let you answer because it's your experience. I'm curious but here I am to give my sure. answer of your experience. <laughs> I, I think it's also knowing that you were feeling unfulfilled in what you were doing before. Yeah, and, for sure and, that played a role. And not wanting to live the rest of your life in that space. And so hoping that eventually this would pay off and that you would experience that fulfillment. Yeah. So you, you couldn't do something else is what it was. Well, not and be happy. Right. And so why did you choose to persevere and risk everything to try to be happy as opposed to settling down and getting a stable job? Well, I don't understand your question. What do you mean? Why? Well, so you, you, you want me to talk about your choices and why your choices are, are your choices. But, and I want to know what no, caused no, but your No, you're putting it back on me. I need you to convince me that making that decision wasn't <laughs> yeah, that's just, just luck. This, I, is how, this is how the convincing works. Or that it works. was all just luck. Yeah, this is how the convincing works is I try to find out why you made that choice. I, I, don't, I don't know. Okay, so you don't know why you made the choice. Well, but, I don't know. I mean, because it's been years ago. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We've been wildly successful for many years, Aaron. Yes. No, I mean, there is a specific moment that I don't, I'm, we're not going to get into uh, of the of the fight that we had. Um, uh, I don't want to say fight, but, you know, we, it was, it was also, a discussion. I think the point is that he wants you to get to is that you're unable to quantify what it was. And so in lieu of you being able to quantify what it is, Aaron is going to swoop in and let you know what it is. <laughs> and oh, then you're going to be forced. That was, that was not exactly what I was going for. To but accept. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. He's like, oh, that was actually a better plan. I like of course it, it is the plan. <laughs> we all know what's happening. Well, so so here's, here's where this plays out, in my opinion, is there's, this is a regress problem that can go pretty much until you give up. Which is, I, you say you have a, you did a thing under your control that was your choice. I ask you your reasons. You give me a reason. But I don't, why do I have to have a reason for the choice that I made? Uh, I made so the choice. I don't think when you say that you have free will, you mean I did something for no reason. I think you say, you think, I think you think you mean I did well, something I did for it, well, a I, reason I what, that I chose. I tell you what then, I did it for the gamble uh-huh. that, right. that I'm, that it's gonna pay off. Right. With no hard knowledge, right? But an uh, 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 a guesstimate, right? A, a cost so benefit I, analysis. I wa- combined. That's exactly. Yeah. I yeah. wagered that it was going to pay off, and luckily it did. Right. But but the decision was to persevere, right, and or to stop and go get a conventional right. And job. What, what would happen next in the regress is I ask you what features of you as an individual of your character, your constitution is the technical term that we mm-hmm. use, right made you the sort of person who 
when faced with that cost-benefit analysis, made the choice that you made instead of a different choice. And that's where I'm lucky enough to have that makeup. You were lucky enough to have whatever balance of risk um, tolerance and ability to do the painful work when you weren't getting supported. All of the all of the psychological, all of the physical, you know, being in a place where you could, you know, even if you were scraping by with pennies, you could at least survive long enough to rack up lots of credit card bills. Right, right. <laughs> but like, now, this is something that we've talked about actually, which yeah. like we we spent a long time, and and this is we're not we're not different from the majority of Americans, right? For 40% sure. of Americans in one poll, I think like five years ago, it's probably increased at this point with the pandemic and everything that's happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, 40% of Americans couldn't cover an unexpected $400 expense without putting it on a credit card or borrowing money. So there have definitely been times where if we had gotten sick, if we had gotten cancer, if we had uh, been evicted, mm-hmm. if we, yeah. I mean, there, if our car had broken down. Yeah. I mean, at any moment, some catastrophic thing could have happened, which again would be out of our control, would be very unlucky, would have created a situation of further desperation where we would have had to make a different choice. Yeah. And y'all are familiar probably with like, um, survivor bias not survivor yeah. guilt which you you are also familiar with but thank you Aaron. Uh, survivor <laughs> bias right <laughs> raised by wolves <laughs> you know the fact that whenever you go to like a you know how to be successful bs you know mlm thing tony robbins right they're going to tell you i did xyz and that's why i succeeded when the reality is a bunch of people did xyz and they got unlucky and yeah. like that's the difference but you don't see the losses right you see you see the wins and so it's very easy to put yourself into, again, that meritocratic mindset where you think I got to this spot because I did that hard work and so I deserve this. And you don't think about all the people who also did the exact same or more hard work and therefore also deserve it but didn't get there. And maybe maybe you do and then you just think, well, we just live in an unjust world. Screw those people. But most people who want to buy into the uh, like free will stuff, also another strong association in the literature is belief in a just world. Which is fucking how the fuck? But you believe in a, you you don't believe in a just world, but you believe so so yeah. Well, I think, let's explain what just world is. Oh yeah, by sorry. The way, yeah. yeah, yeah. So this is just the idea that like our universe is organized in such a way where justice comes to everybody eventually. You know, if you believe in heaven, hell, you, a good reason a lot of people believe in it is because they want us to live in a just universe where the person who you know the Donald Trumps of the world who die without facing serious consequences face some serious consequences somewhere else. Or but but at least they die. But at least they die. Right. <laughs> Which, I don't know, for a malignant narcissist may not actually be bad, given how miserable I think it is to be inside the head of a malignant narcissist. Death is probably a sweet release. And then he's just memorialized yeah, in perpetuity. Well, course, obviously. Yeah. Um, so that's so, the just world, which I, I, I do not understand how someone buys into that at all. And, and so basically there's you know, there's a spectrum of meritocratic thinking where you have moved away from one end of it, in my opinion, that is the very strict just world bootstrapping you know, poor people deserve to be poor kind of view to a place where you're like, well, that's not true, but we still want to motivate people to work hard. So how do we do Hmm. that? How do we keep that good motivation while also acknowledging systemic injustice and privilege and all these other kinds of woke ideas that you've been cucked into? 
Well, and that's <laughs> wow. That seems like uh, quite the task that you have on your hands. And I'm wondering, though, still unconvinced. But go ahead. Do Brittany. you do you consider it? Do you consider it a win that Jesse has gone from that end of the spectrum mm-hmm. and is now where he is with the is it eighty twenty or eighty five fifteen eighty five fifteen? Not even down to eighty. Would you? Not yet, the motherfucker. Yeah, the episode's not over would yet. You, would brother. you say that that's like a win that people maybe are shedding these vestiges slowly and getting closer to where they need to be? Would you consider that a win? Uh, yes. Absolutely. Or are you going to pack your bags tonight and leave? Yeah. No, I'm not. A, I'm not a. You know, I'm I'm fine with incrementalism here. You okay. know, I'll be uh, so. There are lots of like halfway houses, I think, on the way to my position. Um, stoicism is a classic one where there are lots of especially dudes who find stoicism to be really helpful for dealing with anxiety about external. Define functions. that for me. Yeah, okay, sorry, me. I apologize. Um, so stoicism is a classic Greek philosophy that has been adapted, developed in various ways in the modern world. The basic idea would be you want to focus your energy on things that are under your control and be happy about the things that are under your control or you like focus your emotional responses to those things rather than the things that are beyond your control. The classic example being, you know, you're playing a game, you should enjoy playing the game and not worry about winning because that's beyond your control. Just play for the sake of playing. Right. And this is better than people. I guess I'm not a stoicism not, guy. Right. I'm getting a strong non-stoic vibe from over here. You're more of an Epicurean, let's say. Um, but Underlying uh, CBT as well. Cognitive behavioral cognitive therapy. Behavior. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's been interconnected with that. And it's basically, you know, it's like the motivational theory stuff, the attribution theory stuff that comes up in education that I'm talking about where you're attributing, you know, what causes a thing to happen what they want to do is they want to get people to focus on causes that they have more control over because it actually does to some extent improve your ability to function. If you, you know, if you're told you can do better on the test, if you work hard and you work harder, you could, you have a higher likelihood of doing better on the test. than if you're told you did poorly because of your bad innate ability and you can't change your abilities. So you're just stuck that way. Right. So are you, so you are doing work right now to navigate those waters in order that when you talk about this, you don't fucking bum people out. Because right. I could very well see a scenario where, mm-hmm. where you're talking about, oh, it's just all luck. Or well, what the fuck? Why am I even trying then if everything is luck? Yeah. I got whole lesson plans just about why should I still care if everything is luck? So like the quick and short answer to the like, and then I'll come back to the stoicism of like, why do we not, you know, become in the fetal position and miserable? is because your belief, like, your egoic attachment to your success... Come on, dude, with the words. Uh, sorry. Egoic? Sorry, you're... you're... <laughs> I know I'm not the only one out there who's no. like, what the fuck? You know what ego means, though. You know, like, you know, someone oh, who has... egoic. I, yeah, okay, so... Okay. It's the ego. Right, right. So, so self-esteem... Did you know? Yeah. Oh, she's, fuck. she's got a psychology background. Of course she's dumb, dumb. Um, no, so I apologize. I, I need to be using less of that language. That's my fault. Um, you know, we do feel attached to our successes, and we want to like be able to claim credit for them. Um, and I think we have to. We want to move away from that, and instead, be able to take pleasure in helping someone. So you know, when you help somebody and you don't get any reward for it, but you still got to help that person, that can still be a very pleasurable experience so you you re, you realter you shift people's motivations away from like external praise and blame kind of motivators and towards genuine concern for the well-being of others and things like that so do you think i am doing 
I was going to say bad. Let me alter that. Uh, mm-hmm. Harm mm-hmm. by talking as much as we do about luck and still ascribing some uh, modicum of percentage of importance or a role playing to to perseverance to work a little bit. You do. You think there's harm involved? Yeah. So, uh, so uh, let, define let me, the harm because yeah. is it like uh, insurrectionist? Well, is it insurrectionist harm or <laughs> like what are we looking at? Or am I just like you know harsh in somebody's mellow? Well, so this this comes back to the Stoics. So my reason for saying the Stoics are a halfway house is because they think things external to you as an individual are beyond your control. So they draw the line of control as like. My internal emotional reactions, my psychological states are under my control. What goes on out there is not under my control, right? I argue if you really dig, you know, if you take that view seriously, if you don't sort of cheat, cheat out of it when it gets hard, it means that you have to like spend less energy on social justice that tries to change the external environment and more on accepting that this is just the way things are and you're not going to be unhappy about the fact that you're a slave or something like that. So this, there, there are similar concerns with things like Buddhist um, non-attachment with Christian non-attachment. This, you know, um, the Neoplatonic slave cult. Right? You, you don't want to you don't want to turn people into slaves by telling them that they should just not feel bad about being slaves. And obviously, you're not doing that. But what I do think when you say hard work is different than luck, you are reproducing this idea that like luck is something out there, and what's going on internal to you is not luck on some level. Do you Yeah, I don't I don't buy that. That that sentence I don't buy because we ascribe the lion's share of good things that happen to us to luck internally as well as externally. Yeah. So like you know your ability to come up with content, your your mental Yeah, no capacities. listen, I I do agree that luck plays an outsized role even in the fact that I was born into uh, America. Mm-hmm. I was born white. Mm-hmm. I was born in the dominant religious group. Mm-hmm. Um, I was lucky enough to have whatever synapses firing correctly to have me be as dumb or as smart as I am. I'm able to communicate the way I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it all of that's lucky. I I I admit, I'm fully on board with that. And then I think the burden of proof shifts to you to explain what you mean by hard work that isn't all of those things that you're describing there. And I've already, we're we're just going to rehash, and it's, again, the choices. Well, but what do you mean, like, what is the choices besides all of the things you just described there? (laughs) Like, what what goes into a choice besides everything you just listed? So you're saying it is lucky that I made the decision to gamble. That's a luck. That's all luck. Yeah, so, so, and I'll, I'll bring this back to Nagel, who luck pilled me. You know, he gives these different categories of luck, and there's, like, the luck of how things work out. There's the luck of the circumstances that you're born into, but there's also the luck of the features that make you you, what he calls the constitutive luck. Mm-hmm. So your mental capacities, your physical state, all of that stuff is also all traceable. And so, like, the regress game we were playing earlier, if we keep playing that game, we're going to eventually trace back to psychological explanations from your childhood or something. Like, some features, you know, something that you experienced when you were a child that made you, you know, more or less risk-averse or something like that, that essentially. There's uh, there's a convincing element to that. Yeah. And I so, mean, I'm, I'm more... I'm closer to you um, right this moment than I was when we flipped the mics on. Yeah, I... Ooh. Yeah, a little bit. Interesting. But still, like, you know, I, I, I'm... Maybe it's just recalcitrance that I'm sticking to the fucking... <laughs> the a little bit of work thing. 
Well, and let me let me but ask. That's, no, that's good. It, that whole regression that, that back, 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 back. There's all of these different circumstances that I had no control over that did form me and mold me to be who I am. Yeah. This monstrosity of a fucking human being. And, right and now. let me let me drop a um one Sorry, of Nagel's Fagel favorite favorite quotes. One of my favorite quotes of him that he basically says when you really trace back all of the lines of luck. You know, this little space inside of you that you set aside that said, you know, it was you that isn't the result of luck shrinks and shrinks and shrinks down to an extensionless point. And so, you know, once you open the door to the idea that the features that make you who you are could be luck, I don't think you can ever stop the regress from eventually sliding into all the features of you. And then you just have to figure out how to, you know, on the other side of that existential crisis, you know, continue to be motivated and compassionate and all those sorts of things. What has the effect been on you personally once you acknowledged that everything is luck? Um, And again, I want to heavily caveat that like people who say, oh, meditation made me a better person. Introspection is flawed. You you found the Sam Sam Harris Harris app? (laughs) Yeah. Waking up? I want to just caveat that I am not in fact Sam Harris. Um, There are... I think, and this is, again, somewhat backed up by the evidence, there are reasons to think that doing this work makes you more compassionate, more sort of humble, though no one who listens to me will ever believe that's true. Um, (laughs) You know, because you don't think that anything that you've successfully done is something you deserve credit for. It's all luck. And so you, you know, you immediately, my experience, I often will just like deflect to whatever person helped me or something. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to talk about how I did something good or something like that. Um, and there's also more forgiveness both for yourself and others when you fuck up mm-hmm. because we all fuck up. And 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 you, you have to balance this stuff because you don't want to slide too far to just total permissiveness. Morality still matters and we still need to like act morally and habituate ourselves to act morally, but we also have to be compassionate about... Um, the people who who fail to do so often through forces beyond their control, often like economic forces, right? We all realize that like so much of immoral behavior is driven by, you know, insecurity and scarcity and stuff like that rather than, you know, an evil person who wants to do evil. One thing that I like about uh, what you say about luck is that people should create more opportunities for other people to have luck. I'm saying it in an Mm -hmm. eloquent way. You say it much better, but I I think that I identify with that because Jesse and I do talk a lot about luck, attribute a lot of our experiences to encountering people who helped us did things that helped get us along. And if we could be those people that help other people, like that's creating lucky situations for other people. Am I explaining it the way that you intend yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, there, you know, there, you see lots of different versions of this out in the world. The p- folks who talk about privilege have, you know, like spend your privilege is a good phrase that it means the same thing or pay it forward was the 90s version. Mm-hmm. Right. Like and it is just, yeah, just basic. Kevin idea. Spacey. Uh, you know, the noblesse oblige is the older, more horrible version. And you have to be worried, you know, to be, you have to make sure you don't get like weirdly paternalistic about it. But like, absolutely. We all see some version of this. And I think. It's an easier lift for folks on the left politically, both for the psychological reasons we've already discussed, but also because we're in a current climate where issues of privilege have become politicized in a way where folks on the left are very willing to pick up on the ideas of systemic injustice and, and like needing to reorient the system to get rid of food deserts and stuff like that. But even conservatives, I think, are more than they have been in the past. Some of them are more inclined to think about this stuff 
And I think it actually is a key to helping the ones who are getting sucked into stuff like QAnon and MAGA stuff because a lot of there's I think there's good evidence that what is driving a lot of that is a feeling of they do believe that they are living in a meritocracy and they're not succeeding. And they either have guilt and shame because they're not succeeding or they think it's because someone is cheating them out of it. And either they you know, sublimate that guilt and shame and it comes out as things like racism or anti-Semitism or something like that. Or, you know, they just openly blame those people for being the ones who are making their unjust, un- their just universe unjust. And so it makes them more susceptible to conspiracy theories and to spiraling in those kinds of directions. So if you can help them understand... And you can use language like there, but for the grace of God go I is a you know a Christian way to talk about these kinds of things. And I'm not just code switching because I actually value, value the ways in which a lot of religious traditions talk about this kind of stuff and talk about, you know, we were talking, I think, last night about, you know, Jesus is just all about the, the giving the money away. Like, yeah. pay, that, pay that shit forward. Like, that's not your money. <laughs> you don't need it in heaven. Give it away. Um, and his reasons aren't 100% exactly what mine are, but... I do think there are ways that you can find common ground with folks almost everywhere on this stuff if you are willing to be, you know, honest and concerned about their, like, the fears about what does this mean for, you know, society? What does this mean for prisons? Do we just empty out the prisons on this view? How do you solve criminal justice? There are answers to all those questions, and they take, you know, lots of time. But I I just want people to understand that I think those concerns are legitimate but there are positive benefits to bringing the world in this direction. And it's why I think progressives are implicitly pushing a lot of this stuff a lot of the time. Do you, um, do you fear speaking of, you know, fights for social justice, which we are passionate about here on, on the program, Mm -hmm. uh, that, that a full throated adherence to the belief that luck is all you got will diminish support for, social justice movements because if it's all luck and I mean, you're not saying that you can't have an impact. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, two things there. We've talked about the word control a lot and we really, it's important to disambiguate, to distinguish, sorry, I keep using philosophy terms, uh, to distinguish between <laughs> um, two kinds of control. So there's a kind of control that we all know we have all the time, which is what you know, I, we call it causal influence, right? I can pick up a glass. I can, you know, slap you. Um, I those Please don't. I, yeah, I'm just looking for evocative examples because I know you like fun, uh, you know, physical comedy. Um, <laughs> I know it doesn't play well in this medium, but so the idea is you have that. We all have that all the time. No one's denying that. The problem is ah, fuck. See, see, he deserves it. Um, not a good actor. I know. No, not a hard slap. Uh, what we don't have is the kind of control that's specifically needed for free will and moral responsibility. Which is, I, I would describe it as causal dominance, which is to say, think of the entire chain of causes that leads up to your action, that regress problem that we mm-hmm. were just doing, right? You would need to have causal, the dominant causal influence over every step of that in order to say that luck never infected it at any point, and therefore we can hold you fully responsible for the impact, of, the end line of that chain of causes, mm-hmm. right? Which is impossible, obviously impossible on many many levels and that's why there is no free will or luck or or there's no free will there's all luck and then you know it's, there's no moral responsibility so which can we yeah. can we get into that mm-hmm, absolutely uh well so yeah because the other thing you were asking there was about um 
do we do people stop doing social justice if there is no free will you know like if it's all luck and, and this is where it was important for me to put the pin in morality survives so and this is a little counterintuitive to some folks it may you'd think that if there's no moral responsibility what you mean is there's no morality those things would rise or fall together uh perhaps this is, you should, but so, I haven't given it enough thought to, right. to give you an answer right. Intuitively, right. Yeah. You see this in the philosophy literature a lot initially. That there's an intuitive assumption that like if you if you disagree with free will, if you undermine free will, you're undermining moral responsibility and implicitly by extension morality. But they come apart and we can tell we can see this in all of the circumstances in which we do think that someone does something bad or wrong, but we don't hold them responsible for it. So a small child gets a hold of a gun, shoots another small child, doesn't know what they're doing. It's clearly an immoral act in the sense that it hurts someone, right? The kid is dead. Is it though? Well, so so if by it depends what you mean by morality, but if by morality you mean has features like has immoral consequences, right? So bad consequences like someone being shot. Mm-hmm. I think we agree. So if I, you know, choose, you know, fully freely quote unquote, to kill somebody with a gun when they don't deserve it. We think that's a bad outcome, right? It's still a bad outcome if I didn't freely choose to do it. Yeah. Some people get caught, caught up in this Fucking thing. Fucking philosophers. Yeah. Well, some people get caught up in this idea of like ought implies can. Some people think of like, well, if you couldn't have done otherwise, what does it mean to say you ought not to have done otherwise? Yeah. But I actually think that's really only talking about moral responsibility. What we mean is moral responsibility implies could have done otherwise, which I do think is true, but we're just, we don't need that. What we do need is to say it's wrong for people to be kept in abject poverty, can we all agree that it's wrong? Absolutely. Right. If it's wrong for that to be the case and you have causal influence that could change that, you have a moral obligation to try to change it. If you succeed, it's because of luck. But you still have an obligation to try. Hmm. The, the other thing that I did want to, mm-hmm. to, to touch on is your belief that, and I want to state it very clearly, mm-hmm. Aaron Rabinowitz believes... <laughs> No one deserves to be punished. Right. Is that accurate? Yes. No one. Yes. No one deserves to be punished. Even Hitler, you said. Even Hitler. And and this is a subset of a broader claim. <laughs> Fucking bananas. Hey, we live in a woke culture. Are you going to tell me, Aaron David Rabinowitz, that I'm allowed to say certain things about Hitler? <laughs> Yes. Okay. You're fucking goddamn Brit- right. Brittany, on the other hand, I is will uh, abstain. I will demure <laughs> from this conversation. I don't think I'm allowed to opine right now. So. Oh, you don't want to tell us your views of? What? No, I can definitely do that. I'm just saying I'm um, not going to tell you tell what, what to say about Hitler. about Hitler. Yeah, yeah you no, can I, feel I, how you want to feel. If you love him, you love him. What am I supposed to do? Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so basically, I don't think at the end of the day anyone deserves anything including to be punished so the idea of dessert is i think a mistake that we should get rid of along with moral responsibility and where it doesn't jibe for me yeah is that you aren't necessarily a like prison abolitionist you do believe that there is utility in remanding people in the custody of the state and right. no longer having them interact with 
the rest of polite society. Uh, can I pause for a second? Yeah. If you have an obligation mm-hmm. to assist the efforts of eradicating poverty, as you said, mm-hmm. but whether or not you succeed or fail is up to luck, but you're still obligated to try is what you said. Mm-hmm. How, how, how does that come in with the whole Hitler situation? Like it wasn't he obligated to be different? And yes. not like murder millions. Yeah. So of- we could all agree that Hitler did something bad. Uh-huh. That's never going to be in question. To say the least. Right. <laughs> Pretty bad. Right. But, and I think we talk about, we, all, we do talk about this some when we talk about people like him. We talk about the circumstances of post-World War I Germany where you have rampant anti-Semitism and poverty and those kinds of factors you you can you talk about the psychological factors that go into Hitler being Hitler like all these sorts of things we just when it comes to that and I was talking about this last night right when it comes to that moment in the Marvel movie where the bad guys making a little too much sense I'm not saying Hitler makes sense but like and we need them to still be punishable because we want to punish them we want to punish Hitler that's our desire right we're going to at the end of the day still sort of pull out the free will choice card so that we can feel that it, it it's right to say that Hitler deserves to be punished. Um, but I, I don't think anyone sort of deserves anything. And, and the prison abolition thing. No, 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 no. Yeah. So if people are obligated to try to eradicate poverty, that means they should be making a choice to try to eradicate poverty, right? A choice to do good things, right? Mm-hmm. They're obligated to make that choice, right? Yeah, and choice here in the in the like thin sense of you know you act and you are will. He's you a are... slippery motherfucker, Brittany. Well, so so. <laughs> Am I in the maze with you right now? Am I doing a maze thing that other people yeah, do? Yeah, a little bit. So think of it like you know what you're just attacking me again. <laughs> <laughs> well, so go back to the character stuff, like the you know yeah. your 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 constitution, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What we want to do is help people be lucky enough to have an ethical constitution, and this was Aristotle's point way back when with virtue theory is the idea of, and he, he talks about how, you know, most people are going to be unlucky enough not to become ethical because it requires being taught ethics and being given the situations to act ethically and develop your ethical character early in life. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to dig your way out of that when you haven't had that. It's not impossible, as you personally know, but, like, it makes it a lot harder. Like, it is, it's an impediment, and, you know, like any other kind of privilege, it puts you farther back in the... The journey, you know, in the in the race to try to get to being that fully developed ethical person, mm-hmm. whether you become an, an ethical person or not, is ultimately the result of luck. And so, we want to we want to help people live in environments where they act ethically and become ethical people. But we also want to have compassion, even for Hitler, <laughs> for people who don't do that and have and do really horrible things and act unethically as a result. Now, again, I'm not interested in telling people your personal feelings towards Hitler, but it's more like there's a story that I often tell when I talk about this. It is probably an apocryphal story from one of the concentration camps where there's a guy kneeling and praying and another guy comes up to him and says, what the fuck are you kneeling and praying for in a place like this? Yeah. And he says, I'm thanking God for not making me like them. Hmm. And I think, you know, it's continuation of a Socratic idea that like, it's better to um, suffer injustice than to cause it. And that, like, you know, you see it in, in woke stuff. You can talk about, um, like, pedagogy of the oppressed talks about how oppressors are also dehumanized and brutalized by being oppressors, and their lives are also terrible. Right. And we need to liberate them as well as ourselves, that we're all caught in these cycles of violence and abuse and suffering. 
it's very complicated to navigate that in individual experiences with real people and stuff. But like, I think this is the direction we move in and we do it by putting down piece by piece our desire to, to punish. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm sorry to kind of, uh, mm-hmm. throw a wrench cause I know that you were headed in a different direction, but I guess I'm just struggling with the, um, obligation piece that you have that mm-hmm. there where we are obligated to do certain things. But then on the other hand, they, we are absolved of choice, control and moral responsibility. Does that make sense? Because if you choose not to lift people out of poverty, right? That that's again just that's just the luck of the draw. You, there's no there's no blame to be leveled, right? Is that kind of where you're going, Brittany? Yeah, I mean, I just I feel like we're like there's two opposing forces. Like you have the obligation to take an action mm-hmm. that you know to be right. And if you choose because not you have to, access to that information, but then on the other hand, you're also arguing that we need to absolve people of choice, moral responsibility, and control, and mm-hmm. and quote unquote bad decisions, yeah, like not helping lift people out of poverty, right? And so, what I think we need to do there is, yeah, it's a, it's a really good way to put it, and and so how do I want to phrase this? So let, let's take the example of like a thoroughgoing psychopath someone who doesn't understand morality lacks the capacity to act if you just want to talk about my dad just say my dad right let's talk about your dad right (laughs) right your dad um you know we think it's wrong for your dad to try to threaten to kill people who are black for example right yeah right deeply immoral but we don't think he I, i think when we really are serious about it if if we mean someone who is so broken from the beginning that there's just no way for them to understand morality what does it mean to say that he like could have done otherwise, right? Like, so that this gets into a problem where I think if you take the luck stuff seriously, the first thing that you jettison for some people is judgments of people who do wrong. You still maybe are going to praise people. Like it's good to positively reinforce someone who does something good, but we're going to stop with as much as the negative reinforcement because we think that those people you know, we, we need to like rehabilitate them rather than like they deserve punishment and that's what we're going to met out to them or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and so what, what I think we would say is, I think it's correct to say your father ought not to try to kill non-whites, right? But there's no sense in which he could have done otherwise. And so he's not really responsible for his actions, but we're absolutely going to keep him away from doing the things that he wants to do. We're going to prevent him from doing those sorts of things. All of those. But isn't that punitive? No. So punitive specifically means we're doing it because you deserve to be punished. So that was why it was important when you asked me if someone deserves to be punished. You're not saying they shouldn't be punished. You're saying they don't deserve to be punished. And that we shouldn't frame it as punishment. So you love to split the fucking hair. Well, no, so really just right down the middle. If we, cor- <laughs> if, if we quarantine somebody who has COVID, for example, are we punishing them for having COVID? I don't believe so, no. No, right? Because they didn't do anything wrong. They just got unlucky. They got COVID, right? I think we should understand, and this is um, Greg Caruso has a whole book about this that came out recently. It's very good about retribute, you know, um, reconsidering retributivism, where you you don't need to see prisons as punishment facilities. You need to see them as as quarantine facilities, timeouts, as, as rehabilitation facilities, like a lot of you know non American prison systems yeah. are, are designed to be more humane. And there are there are lots of ethical debates about well, what happens when you have a humane prison? Are they 
you know, is it not ethical? And then like people come, you know, like that's when the punitive desire comes out is you see people like, no, I want to see this person suffer. Mm-hmm. And well, I think, uh, mm-hmm. I think oftentimes um, people have a limited bandwidth mm-hmm. for mercy or concern and you know in in mm-hmm. we're we're already expending we're, we're utilizing the 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 width and breadth of the bandwidth right on people who are suffering unjustly people who Absolutely. are are in that terrible straits and situations and and we don't have anything left over for the rapist I, I, or yeah. the child molester. I hear this all the time. Absolutely. And and so I'll use ah, an example. Fuck, I thought it was unique. Well, no. no. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really good point because, and I, I, I talk about this actually, this is a way where I can try to curry favor with the conservative listenership in terms of... Uh, that, our, sounds very, our, that sounds very... That sounds mal- manipulative. Everyone has a minority of hate listeners. It happens. Oh, oh we, we do. do. We yeah. fucking do. <laughs> so if you're still here, hate listeners, who have probably hated everything I've said up to this point. Um, another piece of this as is, soon as you said i'm not sam harris yeah, they were fucking they were, seething yeah <laughs> um you know the, the white privilege stuff that is i think important that people need to learn about that is a valuable corrective to the, the meritocratic thinking stuff has a dark side to it that has been substantiated in the literature where if you teach it in the wrong kinds of ways in an unscaffolded and in my opinion not talking about the larger luck issues kind of ways you see Essentially, conservatives turn, sorry, liberals turn into conservatives psychologically, specifically with regard to poor white people. So, what happens is they start to think of the bad outcomes of poor white people as being their responsibility, attributing them to their internal failures to not Hmm. act, uh, you know, to not successfully take advantage of their privilege and stuff like that. You do see that because I don't know that I see that. Oh, absolutely. Maybe it's just because I grew up and, and they, one and, of those poor white people. Well, you're saying you see that in the literature like that's been studied. Yes. Okay. There huh. is at least some evidence that this is a unwelcome side effect of teaching about white privilege is that you reduce compassion towards poor white people. And is that only with white privilege and they are not talking about other forms of privilege, like not making room for other forms of privilege, like, for example, oh, yeah. socioeconomic privilege? <sighs> I don't remember. I'd have to go back and look at the study. I do think they did some control trying to control for other kinds of factors like right, that right. um and i think and i've also you know you, you see various versions of this on different sides of the the privilege kinds of questions that that it does tie in so when i talk about how we actually need to have more compassion for poor white people and that we're 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 potentially working in the wrong direction on that by doing the wrong kind of woke training i get pushed back where people are like fuck them like i don't don't have enough bandwidth i have to worry about the people who are worse off for more pressing more whatever reasons or something like that and that is a response that i understand we all are dealing with empathy burnout it is getting worse and worse as we know more about the world and how terrible everyone's experiences are in the world there's a point at which all of us have to say i can't care about that thing anymore but i think you could even psychologically do that without also using the defense mechanism of fuck them, it's their own responsibility. Yeah, I, I think for me, and I do, I do recognize what you're talking about right now. Like, I think when we talk about white privilege, we should also bring into the conversation the other elements of privilege that just because you're white, like let's say you're dirt fucking poor in Appalachia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're white, but 
it's not carrying you to the to the the crystal golden penthouse of Donald Trump's fashioning. It's right. Yeah, you're white, and you're going to be able to navigate more easily in your in your group there. But you're still poor as fuck, and never going to be anything other than that. And this is one of the things where I, I like talking about luck because I think everyone is very um, polarized about privilege. It's a highly political politicized sure. term. I've you know seen evidence that like because conservatives in particular don't want to have those conversations, but they will have more of a conversation about luck. They are still there's still more resistance, but it's less of a triggering term and you can have a wider conversation more easily about how every person is a mix of good and bad luck that when you hear someone being called privileged you, you i think it's often read as like all of the all things considered final conclusion like a binary kind of a thing right either you're privileged or you're marginalized and it's a final count of like all of your oppression olympic scores not just on sure. one thing right when you have the luck framework you can talk about you know class luck and you know, gender, all the intersectional kinds of lucks that are out there in the world and see how they all come together and create really complicated, weird outcomes for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and in doing so, again, I think you can just engender more compassion and, and more understanding. So, like, you know, I have people come at me in all sorts of weird ways, and I have an easier time when they do not reacting aggressively, right? So I get a lot of weird messages. Some of them, like, from... You know, people who I might end up wanting to collaborate with who just, you know, because you're on Twitter and you see something, you throw off some shit that you didn't think much about. And like, you know, you, if you if you fought back, you would end up, you know, being an enemy with that person. And instead you like you just roll with it and you realize that they're, you know, just working through some shit or something. And, and on the other side of it, they end up being close friends. And, and you're looking at me like this has nothing to do with our personal relationship here. Obviously, this is yeah. other. Yeah, other definitely people. not. us. Yeah, no. <laughs> Um, we fucking hated each other in the beginning. I am trying to figure out who you are talking about, though. Oh, yeah, it was just... Off-pod, off-pod. Yeah, you know, it's scholars who, you know, feel frustrated when people haven't read their work before ta- commenting on a subject that is of interest to them. Yeah. Not acknowledging necessarily that there is infinite writing on every subject at this point. And so, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how this would be measured because I don't think Pew Research Center or Gallup is like surveying people on what they view the role of luck is in their lives. But since you have been interested in this for quite some time and you've been researching this, reading about it, would you say that the needle has moved? I remember when Obama, I think he was president at the time, mm-hmm. said you didn't build that mm-hmm. and everyone got very upset. Mm-hmm. But that was really commentary on luck and and the role that luck plays mm-hmm. in people's lives. Would you say that the inartfully ne- commented on it? But, yeah. yeah. Would you say that the needle has moved in the past 10 years where more people are willing to accept that luck at least has a greater role to play in the outcome of their life? I think yes and then it like with a tiny but Right, where so I think the Obama example, and there's two actually, there's actually two that often get brought up in like the meritocracy and luck literature. There's the you didn't build that, and there's the clinging to their guns and religion mm-hmm. quote, um, which was fucking 100% spot on. Right, it's accurate. And if you read it in the larger context, it's, compa- it's, it's meant to be more compassionate than it sounds. He's explaining that these individuals who've had really bad luck are all the stuff I was saying earlier about they, they've lost out in the meritocracy game and have sublimated that anger into, you know, guns and religion and these sorts of... Well, and people, t- I think people took it as kind of a, a Jesse Ventura, 
mm-hmm. people are using religion as a crutch, like right. more of an insult, insult rather than an, in, an insult. <laughs> right. How fancy. Yeah. Uh, rather than Dijon insult. Really, um, <laughs> rather than a really um, metered way of, of addressing their particular concerns. Yeah. And I think part of it is probably because Obama is you know kind of a, a neoliberal and so isn't fully on board i think i think hasn't fully internalized these critiques enough to not do the like hedging a little bit in a way that actually makes it a less effective argument and also it was just it wasn't well framed but also i think it it highlights that there is probably still a a higher likelihood that if you try to put these arguments forward like if i tried to run for office i'd be fucked right like there's no way just based on this episode alone no amount of eloquence you know like separate from all the other things you could find out about me as a person if you did digging right like Uh-oh. there's no it doesn't make you a serial killer it's really fine um <laughs> right uh so there there's a high likelihood that this is going to receive that's going to be oversimplified when it's described by people as like you know you're either lucky or unlucky in some simplistic way that it could get misused, and that's a real concern, and one that, like, you know, when you're ever you're trying to like change people's views about something, you never know like what demon you're replacing the old demon with. Yeah, sure. So that's a legitimate, absolutely legitimate concern, and it's why I, you know, I'm interested in the research about motivation. It's why I want to, you know, scaffold this stuff very carefully. Um, but I also I do think that we're in an environment for a lot of reasons where people are more open to the reality of things being beyond their control. And it's not just the social justice stuff. It's also the age of the internet telling us so much more information, so many more pieces of technology that are influencing our behavior that we know are influencing our behavior, like our cell phones and stuff, like being directly aware of that all the time, I Mm -hmm. think primes people for this argument what it doesn't prime them for is the not freaking out when the moral bill comes due, right? So what you really need is the scaffolding that helps them when they hit that existential crisis to to spin, you know, to lean into it enough to realize that like you can still care about people, you still ought to care about people, yeah, you know. And 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 paradoxically, you see this in like the mindfulness literature. If you do this kind of work, it actually might make you better at helping people because the theory is. You know, there are two versions of this theory. One is you become a less control over-controlling individual, which makes you better able to act correctly when it actually would help to act correctly. Um, and then the other is um, you stop attrib- misattributing responsibility to some weird independent person and start attributing it to the various forces in the universe that make people act the way they do. And then you have a better idea of what to work on. Huh. So the shift from you know, punish them until they choose to act ethically to create societies where nobody wants to act unethically because they have the basic needs met and can have a life of flourishing without ever stealing from anyone. Yeah, but that's the long game, brother. The people aren't interested in that. This is all long game. In doing the work in the long game. Well, and it reminds me of the postmodern orientations in um, Mm -hmm. psychology that are kind of a challenge to CBT where the postmodern orientations like narrative therapy, for example, will emphasize more the external elements that you don't have control over and mm-hmm. how you there's no real way to tell someone to just like 
focus on how they aren't living in poverty, focus on what they can control when they can't pay their rent, when they're about to lose their car. Like there Mm -hmm. are certain things that even if you're focusing on only your internal capacities, what's happening externally is still creating a fog around you that makes you unable to fully address those things. So it it kind of reminds me of of that postmodern challenge to CBT too. Absolutely. And postmodern stuff is you know, tied in in various ways to critiques of things like the independent self and of meritocracy. And, you know, like the stuff that I'm arguing for is the stuff that, you know, if like people like James Lindsay get a hold of it, will absolutely freak them the fuck out because, (laughs) you know, it does sound like you're telling, you're going to teach kids that it's all luck and they have to like pay forward all their privilege and not take credit for anything. And that, everything that will, fucking freaks that guy out. Something will, yeah, but some things are going to freak out. <laughs> everything some except folks for swords. On yeah, yeah, right. Unless you're prancing around a yard with a giant sword. Right. Um, <laughs> so like, yeah, there are, there is absolutely, I think concerns there. And it, I think, you know, again, not everyone is going to talk about this stuff. Well, and just like we saw with the wokeness stuff, important topics like, white privilege can be talked about in really unproductive, harmful ways, and that can do damage. And there's no perfect way to prevent your sort of theorizing from getting into the hands of bad, you know, bad um, theorists in that kind of way. You do the best you can and you try to, you know, lay out a position that you think will be helpful to the people who hear it directly and hope that the right, you know, that good people pick it up. And Right. It's like yeah. Republicans calling Joe Biden a socialist, you know. Right. You're not going to be able to control what people say about what you're you're trying to do. Right. Things that are... It's just luck. That are definitively incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, you're doing fucking great work, man. I, I mean, even though I'm still not wholly convinced, um, yeah, you move the needle a little, little bit with me. Mm-hmm. And I'm... Listen, if I'm... Persuadable. I'm sure somebody in the audience is persuaded. Well, and let's do that. Do you have like an elevator pitch that you would give someone, let's say, who's very skeptical? Uh, let's let's not put them at a zero percent with the luck, since you said that that's really rare. But let's say that they are reticent to give any credit to luck at all. What what would your elevator pitch be to convince them that that luck plays a greater role than they think? Yeah, I would say. Try to be honest with yourself about what you think the stakes are for holding, for saying that certain things aren't luck. Is it about, you know, personal pride? Is it about you think things are better if that's the case? Is it that you genuinely think it's true? And then based on which of those stakes really matters to you is going to be what kind of argument you want to focus in on. You know, if you really think that there's a a philosophical argument here, look at the philosophical work. But if it's the other stuff... You know, think about why you feel like it's important to be able to take pride in your work and can you benefit from the good parts of that without needing the non-luck parts? Can you take joy in doing a successful thing without having to think about it as like, I did this and I deserve extra bonus, you know, control credit or something like that? (laughs) Um, Because I, I love life and I do a lot of things and I have a lot of fun and I have no shortage of enjoyment or trying to help people be more ethical. And so I think all of the things that people are afraid they might lose if they adopt this view, I think you can salvage all the good stuff. And I, I've yet to find a bullet, like other than the, the really uncomfortable bullet of accepting that no one deserves to suffer, even Hitler. Um, you know, there's no thing that we as a society have to give up on if we adopt this view. We don't have to stop 
enjoying and we don't have to stop protecting. You know, we can still do all the good yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. You are at ETV Pod on Twitter. You are actually compulsively at. Well, no, I was going to say <laughs> you are you are an enjoyable follow. You're I, I find the things that you engage with, the things that you retweet, the 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 comments that get forced into my feed that you've made on other people's it's a great it's commentary. A good time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I would encourage everybody also, great podcast, Embrace the Void Pod and Philosophers in Space. Do you want to give people a little pitch on what Embrace the Void Pod what is? What is this fucking ele- elevator pitch I know. Day? I don't know why I keep doing that. All right. We're gonna, we're gonna that's that's where my head's hey, at right always now. Always be pitching, right? Always be voiding. Um, so, yeah, Embrace the Void is just a lot more of this. Uh, but it's mostly not me. If So if you, like, didn't want to hear me talk this much, it's mostly me asking other people questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Which, I, by the way... I, I mean, everybody's going to be like, of course, Jesse fucking was going to tell him to talk more. I I think people are tuning in. I am tuning in to hear what you have to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wish you would run your suck a little bit more. Oh, on the show? With with the guest. Yeah, mix it up a little bit more. Okay. Well, we're, we're probably going to be moving towards a slightly longer format in the future. I didn't so say longer. I just said more of you Well, that talking. means more Aaron talking. <laughs> I'm saying, I, you know, I will feel more comfortable interceding a little bit more mm-hmm. and not feeling like I'm losing out on them having time to talk. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, but yes, I like asking questions more than I like myself talking a lot of the time, but I will, I'll, I'll take that under advisement. Um, and and the, the topics are very wide ranged. It's nominally about, you know, conversations that help you cope with living in the worst possible timeline, which is where we seem to be existing. Without um, a doubt. And, and it ranges, you know, philosophy, politics, folks like y'all, all sorts of the, all sorts of fun things. And then Philosophers in Space is, you know, think, take a piece of science fiction, movie, show, book, whatever, take a philo- philosophical topic like free will, slam them together and have a conversation. And every episode is... And you, you have a co-host, a f- former previous guest on the show mm-hmm. yeah thomas smith thomas smith yeah, yeah who does opening arguments serious inquiries um good guy and you know he's he comes from a slightly more normie background whereas i was raised on david cronenberg and you know david lynch from a young age so that's part of why i'm a weird serial killer ethicist um but, <laughs> interesting yeah so it, it's partly a, like a, i help him understand these philosophical issues but also i help him understand the weird symbolic analysis of david cronenberg's bug anuses and things like that hmm. <laughs> well right on is there anything else that you'd like to plug i do want to plug the uk skeptic mag which is run by the merseyside skeptic society that's not fucking michael Shermer. very explicitly not fucking michael right. Shermer. i make that very clear every time i plug it um even though some we pe- would edit that part out if it was michael Shermer's bullshit published in the other michael Shermer. Uh, you know mag. what this is another attack on me it's fine <laughs> you know People, people got to grow. You got unlucky at that point. You were, exactly. in, a, you were in a bad epistemic company. It wasn't my choice. Absolutely. I'm absolved. Hey, conspiracies, epistemic stuff, it's all luck. Um, so the UK Skeptic Mag does great work on all sorts of ethical issues relating to things like alternative medicine woo and stuff like that. I have a monthly um, article there, but there's lots of good writers there coming soon. We'll link to the website in the show notes. Yeah, I'm going to have a series coming soon on the Better Way Conference in Bath, England, which was an anti-vax convention that um, was fairly big, I think, and probably will have some downstream implications. So Hmm. Yeah, awesome. So before we go... Uh, first, we want to thank you for coming and Absolutely. spending the weekend with us. Yeah. You know, staying in our home. Uh, it, <laughs> there's been it was one of those situations, one of the rare situations where I think we could have just fucking 
put a mic in front of us just downstairs last night mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. actually made decent content. Yeah, it was pretty funny holding off on talking about all the things you wanted to talk yeah, about. Well, we have a saying to- often in the house, which is fucking save it for the show. Yeah. Let's not burn out here. But <laughs> we didn't gold. We didn't really do that. I mean, we, we recreated and we actually got... We covered other ground here. Yeah, and I've had a, I've had the most fun hanging out with y'all. It's been super, you know, I haven't fallen for a couple this quickly, so it's been, it's been a nice <laughs> well, experience. We, we appreciate you. Uh, you might not appreciate us when we put you on the spot here with our final question that we, 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 we really have been trying to make a habit of asking all of our guests, and that is, what is the last thing that you changed, the most recent thing you changed your mind about? We asked this question because... Obviously, we come out of the backgrounds that we do. We've changed mm-hmm. our minds on many, many things. And we advocate for people changing their minds when the facts change or their understanding of those facts change. So what is the, the most recent thing you've changed your mind about? Mm, and I will say, it, it gets easier to change your mind when you realize all your beliefs are luck. Goddamn, <laughs> here we go. Uh, <laughs> <to the laughs> always be selling. Always be selling. Uh, two things, actually, that are related. I recently changed my mind about moral responsibility, as we've discussed here. I used to think that I was trying to salvage the idea of moral responsibility in a functional way. Now I think I'm just trying to kill it safely at a distance in a way that doesn't harm Because it deserves to be punished. It needs to be slowly put to death. You know, uh, no, yeah, because I, I like to torture concepts. I have a sociopathic background. Um, no, because I think, yeah, I think it's, um, there, it's not salvageable in a way that doesn't end up reproducing the kinds of harms that we want to get beyond and we're okay without it. So that, that was one. The other one, I'll just lose everybody all at once here. I used, I was, I was raised liberal, a progressive liberal, but like, you know, liberal free speech, all that sort of stuff in the past year and a half of doing a lot of reading on like critical theory stuff for my PhD. I have become very critical of pure liberalism. I still am sympathetic to a lot of the core principles in various ways, but I see a lot more of the cracks and I'm, I, I, would, I would say that I no longer self-identify as a liberal, but as a leftist, mm-hmm. um, as a progressive leftist, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would, I, um, that's, that's a shift for me where I just, it doesn't, it, it feels like liberalism too much is still stuck in this meritocratic kind of mindset. Doesn't go far enough for you. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's awesome. Thank you for, for answering those questions and indulging us. We're going to have to have you back, Aaron, because we are at, you know, over an hour, close to an hour and a half, and there's still so much we could talk about. Didn't get into conspiracies. Oh, not even a little. Yep. An hour and a half is like 20 minutes for philosophy time. You know? <laughs> Fucking philosophy. It's hard. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I love talking conspiracy, and obviously we'll get you on ETV so that y'all can talk about your various fundy backgrounds. Yeah. Yeah. So, listen, before we go... Uh, Hello, Marcus. Thank you, Marcus. Yes, thank you, Marcus. For, for the connection. We we love you, brother, and we appreciate you very much. Absolutely. Um, Actually, I want to be clear. Good luck. Good job getting lucky, let's say. God damn. Way to have the luck of putting us together, Marcus. Hey, hey, Aaron. The episode's over, brother. You had your chance. I'm not this way you around. You had your fucking chance. I'm not this way around everyone. It's only the people who deserve it. So listen, uh, we are a listener-supported show. If you would like to support our work... More stuff like this. If you'd like to help produce that, go to patreon.com slash I doubt it podcast. If you're lucky enough to have a few extra dollars a month, we would appreciate your support. We love you. We appreciate you. And we will see you next time. For Brittany Page, Aaron Rabinowitz, I'm Jesse Dollimore, and this has been I Doubt It.